seed that falls into the ground. And what did Jesus say about the seed? The seed must first die. And Jesus was using his life example that he was going to be going to the cross. He was going to be dying for us. And he said, the seed, once it falls into the ground, produces many seeds. See, that's the goal. But you guys know, what is it, plantology? Help me out here, whatever that is. Say again. There we go. That sounds good. Botany, well enough to know that for a seed to produce many seeds, it not only falls into the ground and dies, in essence, it comes to life. It germinates. It grows and thereby produces many seeds. And Jesus said, I am calling you to a life of complete sacrifice. And in John 17, we learned that in Jesus' place of complete sacrifice, his cr the cross and the resurrection. And John, in three or four different places, tells us this, that that was when Jesus was what? Glorified. Was he, was he humbled? Oh, absolutely. The Son of God being crucified on the cross? Absolutely humbled. But Jesus tells us that's when he was glorified. That's when the Father poured out his glory upon him. And he says, now, Father, in his high priestly prayer, John 17, I'm pouring out this glory upon them. They've received my glory. And receiving that glory means we die to self. And initially, in coming to Christ, it is not about what I want in this world, God. We do not come to Jesus because we just want more joy and we want more love and we want a happy life and we want a happy family and we want to be free from persecution. Yeah, right. Now, I'm not going to say that when we come to Christ that we're not going to find joy, but that's not why we come to him. That, that's what the televangelists do in calling us to Jesus. Come to Jesus so you can be happy. Well, what happens when you go through trials and you're not happy? You see, we come to Christ because we die to self. We come to Christ for Mike Curtis to die and for Christ to wash me of my sins. And as I now enter into this new life, I live this life of sacrifice. I live the crucified life. But in the crucifixion, there is always a resurrection. And so as a result, when I believed in Jesus, when every single one of you believed in Jesus, you were raised from death to life. And now you have been empowered by the cross, but excuse me, by the resurrection of Jesus, you've been empowered to live in Christ's kingdom, following kingdom principles. And this main principle that, John, that Jesus is talking about is this crucified life. And he says, as a result, my body is going to be unified. They will be one. And he says that, that as, as they live this crucified life, they will become complete, there will be complete unity. Complete unity. The Greek word there is perfect. Reaching its maximum. Do you believe that in your family, where Christ is present in every single one of the individuals, that there can be complete unity? Do you believe that? That's what Jesus prayed for you. And he says, when this happens, he says, the world will know that, Father, you sent me. That is, they'll understand my mission. That my mission was to live this life 
for them, to leave an example for them, and then to go to the cross, and then be raised from the dead, and ascend into heaven, and sit at your right hand as the king of David ruling over my kingdom. See, this is my purpose. They'll get it. They will know me. And all of you, you get it. And he says, then, and they will also know that the Father loves them. This is our goal. This is our purpose, this concept of complete unity. But we also discovered in Philippians 2 that in this process of becoming completely unified and living this crucified life so that I no longer live but Christ lives in me, that Philippians 2, we saw the example of Jesus. He made himself nothing you get that? That means we make ourselves nothing. This life is not about Mike Curtis, either for me or you. This is not about Mike Curtis. This is not about you. This is only about Jesus and me falling in love with him. And as I'm filled with love for him, I am filled with love for others. Remember when the man came to Jesus and he said, what must I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus says, what do you, what do you say? And the man said, Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And, and I talked about how Jesus was really looking not for a true or false or a multiple choice answer. He was really looking for an essay answer. And the right answer, because he was so close, the right answer was to love the Lord your God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength so that I can love my neighbor as myself. And that's where he talks about the Good Samaritan. You see, so what, we, we live this transformed life, but it is a life that Jesus said, you got to look to others' interests. You have to see their needs, Philippians 2, 3, as more important than your own. Do you really believe that, though? Because the tendency is for us, when we're relying on our flesh, the tendency for us is to live our lives for me. It's to focus on my problems. It's to be so concerned about the worries in my life that it is so hard to look beyond that to see the needs of others and to consider their interests as more important than my own. So this is what we learned. And this week, uh, today, I want us to dig a little bit deeper in this concept of unity among us and how we can promote it. So you're there with me in Ephesians chapter 4. Now, <clears throat> the subtitle in my Bible, I'm reading from the NIV, is Unity in the Body of Christ. That's what we're going to talk about. I think it's a good title. We're going to get a lot deeper than just unity in the body of Christ. But it says here, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you, wait, stop there for a moment. Eyes up. Don't look there. Don't look at what he says next. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you, what do you think he's going to say next? Okay, so here he is. He's a prisoner. He's probably in the Roman arrest when he is, like, about 60 AD, when he's under house arrest in Rome. This is probably where he is. Some suggest he's elsewhere, maybe uh, in Caesarea, but he's more than likely under house arrest in Rome. <clears throat> While he is there, as a prisoner, then, what would you think that he would now challenge them with? He was there for preaching the gospel. 
I want you to go out into the world and I want you to proclaim Christ no matter if you too end up in prison. That would be a, that's what he would probably want to say to them right now. As a prisoner, he's appealing to something. Himself as a prisoner for the Lord, then I'm going to urge you to. Now, what I just shared with you would be a really good answer. It's just that Paul doesn't go that way. You know what he says? As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. His focus is not that calling out that where we can go, but it's right now living this life that's worthy of that calling. And he gets into three things here. If you look at verse 2, here's three things real quick. Excuse me. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Humbleness, gentleness, and patience. And in patience, then we bear with one another in love. And keep your thumbs right there in Ephesians and over in Ro- excuse me, Romans 15, verses 1 and 2. And, and I'm just going to start reading before you get there, but... I want to go through this. We, we do have communion, and uh, I feel like God's laid a lot on my heart. So he says this, Romans 15, 1. We who are strong, that might, that might mean you. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let me translate that. Romans, this life isn't about you. It's just not about you. Bear with the failings of the weak. Who are the weak in your life? Who are those that irritate you? Each of us should please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. Who really does irritate you? Their failings make it so hard for you to bear with them. Maybe you're that guy, (laughs) or maybe you're that girl. (laughs) Let's be honest. Can I ask you, though, how do you treat them? You see, selfishness pushes irritations away. Let's just get rid of the irritation. It avoids it. It avoids them. But love welcomes them. Maybe you've heard this illustration before. Oysters are incredibly interesting creatures, very unique, Um, they actually get irritated by sand. I know certain people in my life, Juliana, who are really irritated with sand. Oysters are, when Juliana gets sand between her toes, when she gets sand in her fingers, under her fingernail, she she hates sand. It's a four-letter word, right? Um, oysters are this way too, but you see oysters, even though the sand, I love oysters too, when sand irritates them, they don't push that sand out, they actually allow that irritation to create in them based on the, what the inside is, I think it's called knacker, and 
With that, they actually create furrows. Without the sand, without the irritation, there are no pearls. Without this person in your life to irritate you, stop nudging that person next to you. Stop that. Without the irritation in your life, there are no pearls. But I, I did say this isn't about us, didn't I? These aren't our personal pearls. How we respond then, yes, God is going to do something in us, but how we respond has the opportunity to create a pearl in them. Not that you irritate them, I'm not saying that. But rather, that God, through his love in us, Mike Curtis crucified, raised with Christ in newness of life, empowered by his spirit to live a life worthy of the calling that I have received. I now, in the face of irritation, can love and speak love and be able to help produce that. Obviously, a work of grace, but God allows us to partner in him. Believe it or not, he calls, in 2 Thessalonians 3, he calls Timothy a co-laborer of God. You are co-laborers with God. God's grace is being poured out upon this irritating purpose of person and <clears throat> God's ultimate purpose God's ultimate purpose is that as we join him and as we yield and live this life, this crucified life, we can now love in response and be compassionate and kind with the failings of the weak. Accepting them verse 7 says Accepting them, welcoming them, even as the oyster welcomes the sand. I can remember two particular people, and because I've shared this illustration before, I'm going to be brief, but Dwight and Susan Monk. Dwight was a seventh grader. Susan, I believe, was in 10th or 11th, an older sister, of course, and... Wonderful parents. Dwight, though, was just this squirrely little teenage kid, and he did just about anything he could to get people's attention. Unfortunately, all that he did just about was to irritate others, and as he got a lot of attention, most specifically, though, criticism. And I can remember pulling two of the main leaders in our group aside, and I said, guys, look. Do you, I want to ask you, why do you think Dwight does this? This is when you know, I, I was in my 20s, um, actually just before I got married. And as I asked him, he said, he just does it because he's an ornery kid. I don't think they use the word ornery, though. He's irritating. That's why he does it. And I said, really, let me share with you what his purpose probably is. He probably feels like he's on the outside looking in. There's a lot of insecurities. He sees you guys, and you guys are popular, and he wants that. So what's he going to do? He's going to open his mouth. Unfortunately, he doesn't build people up. He cuts them down with sarcasm, and it's all about him. And I'm going to encourage you, reach out and love Dwight. Now, his sister was just an awkward, gangly young lady, and she, he, you know, coming into her prime, and, and she was struggling with self-image. She was struggling with just trying to fit in. 
brother and sister just trying to fit in with this small teen group. And I said, guys, look at Susan. Just like Dwight, just love on her and accept her. Pray for her. Go out of your way to be kind to her. And if little Dwight does something that's irritating, just let it be like water off a duck's back. Just love him anyway. So they said, okay, that sounds like really hard. I don't know if we can do that, but we'll try to do that. Well, these guys were leaders. And when they started loving Dwight, and when Dwight would be Dwight's ornery self, and irritating people, they responded in kindness. They just say, hey, you know, Dwight, come on over here. Just come join us for a little while. Not to give him a head noogie or, or punch him in the stomach or in the kidneys or anything like that. Some guys would do. No, come join us. And this is what we're doing. You want to be a part of it? Well, yeah. And so they started including Dwight. No lie. Within months, within months, guys, Dwight was a different young man. And by the next year, he was transformed. And the, 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 the sin, the barriers, this irritations, this, this yearning for love, he began to find that in Christ. His sister blossomed into a beautiful young lady, went on a missions trip. I, I moved, my wife and I got married. We moved on to Phoenix, Arizona for three years, and we got news reports from her. She kept in touch with us for about 10 years. Totally transformed young lady. The group just decided, you know what? We are going to love her. We're going to include her. We're going to build her up. That's going to be our goal. We're going to be completely humble and gentle. We're going to be patient, bearing with one another in love, and we will make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. When that happened, brother and sister just blossomed. The hurts that were there they began to open their hearts up more to Christ, and they fell in love with Jesus. So can I ask you, how do we do this? It's hard. How do we live this life of crucifixion, this life of sacrifice, this life worthy of the calling that we have received? Look at there in verse 7. But... To each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Do you realize that when you gave your heart to Christ and you yielded to the Spirit, he gave you spiritual gifts. He gave you grace. As a matter of fact, it goes on to tell us in verse 11 that there are, I'm going to categorize them in four groups rather than five. But there are four groups of called men of God that are moving um, in the body of Christ, he gave some, it's this, Jesus himself gave these, they gave, he gave gifts to these men, and then he gave them as gifts to the church. It is, he called some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastor teachers. To what end? So they can stand up in front of people and just do their thing and... You know, some, some people, they aspire to being pastors or evangelists because they love the crowd. I don't find that anywhere. As a matter of fact, remember verse 2 starts out, be completely humble and gentle. So no. What do they do it for? It says to prepare God's, look in verse 12, to prepare God's people for a work of ministry. So I happen to fit in one of those categories, pastor, teacher. My goal 
is to equip you guys. It is not my goal to be the professional minister. That is not my goal. I am not a minister with a capital M. I am a equipment manager. It is my goal to say, what, what, what equipment do you have? How can you use it? And to help you learn how to use it. To what end? Do you see it right there? To, so that you learn this, so that you then build, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach what? Until we all reach unity, church. Again, here's the goal. So Christ gave grace. He poured out grace. He poured out spiritual gifts. And as a pastor then, my goal is to help you in your spiritual gifts, your equipment, if you will, to minister to others. For what purpose? That we are unified. Isn't it amazing that our differences, the diversity in the body of Christ, actually can breed unity? Because diversity generally brings division in the world. Let me call your attention to two examples of diversity that brought division. God knows this principle, and he played on it in battle. Do you remember when Jehoshaphat was, was coming up against the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Edomites? There were many of them and they began to march on Jerusalem, and Jehoshaphat said, God, what are we going to do? Their, their army is huge. What are we going to do? We have, like, days to respond to this. And he says, here's, here's the battle plan that God showed me. We're going to send out the worshipers first in battle. Let's just pray for them, okay? Send them out. And then we're, the army is going to follow. And this is what the Lord has shown me. God, this is God's battle. And so this is exactly what they do. And when they get there and they peer into the valley, do you know what they saw? Let me read to you in the Bible what it says happened. It says, this is 2 Chronicles chapter 20. It says, as they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Seir who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. And it says, the men of Ammon and Moab rose up against the men of Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them. After they finished slaughtering the men from Seir, they helped to destroy one another. Diversity tends to breed division when we rely on the flesh. But diversity in the body of Christ with his grace poured out, it actually breeds unity. It is now my goal with a different gift than my wife and Stephen and my daughter Kate here and many of you in different giftings. We now work together. Even though I'm different, we work together and we minister in so many different facets. It's like a football team. You knew I was going to throw a football illustration in there. It's like a football team. You know, if they have just one way of attack, if all they've got is a great quarterback and no running game, generally what happens, and correct me, you football fanatics that know better than me, but your, your game becomes unilateral. Everybody knows, okay, in order for them to get yardage, they're going to have to pass. So they focus on the pass, and they can defeat a team that is lopsided. But when you've got a good passing game and a good running game, and you know how to mix it up, and then you've got a defense that comes in, you know what? You can win those games. And so 
the Pats, even though they probably have the best quarterback ever, they realize they have to have some semblance of a running game or we will lose, no matter how good our quarterback is. And so it is a team that has been, when they tap into their arsenal and their diversity, that's how they win. This is no different than the body of Christ. You know, over there in, in the book of Judges, Gideon, he was coming up against 130,000 Midianites. But it wasn't just Midianites. It was, let me get my Amalekites and other eastern peoples. As they're gathered in the valley, you remember the story. I'm losing my place. Here we go. You remember the story. They were told to whittle their army down from 32,000 to 300. And then when they stood on the mountain ridge overlooking the valley of the Midianites and, and the East, other eastern peoples and Malachites, they, they had a jar covering a torch and a trumpet. And on Gideon's signal, they broke the jars. That means suddenly, all at once, all 300 lights appeared and generally, a torch would represent a, a man in charge of 50 to 100. And they all blew their trumpets, and it was 300 trumpets moving into a valley, and it was nothing but thunderous. And it says that God then stirred these people groups, people groups up, these, this diversity, and they turned on one another. See, that's the way the world does. But the way the people of God do, Paul says, you know what? If you keep on doing this, biting and devouring each other, you will destroy one another. You're different than me. That can be threatening. No. See, for a man or woman of God, you're different than me. I love that. When we get to heaven, church, one of the greatest things I'm looking forward to is the diversity there. It's the cultural diversity. It's people with different skin color and looks and different music and food and, and the way they do life. I'm looking forward to that. That is actually called, in Revelation 21, it's called the splendor of the nations. Christ in me, reflecting in my culture. That is the splendor of the nations. We, in diversity, the Spirit of God has opportunity to move and to move through us to make us unified and to make us this bride of Christ that's ready for his return. Let me move on. In verse 19, Ephesians. In Ephesians 19, I got to turn back there. Excuse me, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, he focuses now on one element, what we say. And I want to just take the rest of our time talking about what we say that builds unity. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. No unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. No idle, careless words that come out of your mouth. But only, un underline that word, church, only in your Bibles. Only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. That it may benefit those who listen. May I say, 
that when we speak words, and we need to dig into this, that when we speak words that are wholesome, in view of people's needs, it says we benefit them. I've mentioned this to you before. That Greek word there, benefit, at least in the NIV, it's translated benefit. It's the Greek word kalis, which means grace. We give grace to those in need. We give grace. The Spirit of God has given me a grace gift. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers are helping build us up using those gifts to minister to one another. That grace then moves through us with our words. We actually, by our wholesome talk, by building others up, lifting them up, what we do is we are actually being dispensers of God's grace. God gives me grace, and he will give you grace in the moment of your greatest irritation, in your greatest struggle, when you come to this feeling like, man, this is too hard for me, God. I just want to give up. I want to take that proverbial towel, and I want to just throw it in the ring. I'm done. It just seems like everything, maybe even you, God, are against me. And it is that time of utter weakness where God's grace is more than enough. He displays it as more than enough. And when we rely on it, we can now not just receive his grace, but just get a load of this. We can dispense that grace to build others up. So here's what I'm going to do. In the ministry remaining, I want to divide people in the body of Christ. I could say the world, but body of Christ, that have the opportunity to tap into this grace, to be grace dispensers. I want to divide them up into four groups. I want us to see them as either subtractors and dividers or adders and multipliers. So I've entitled the sermon, Do the Math. All right? As you do the math, you're going to find yourself in any given situation falling into, I'm either being a subtractor or a divider, or I am being an adder or a multiplier. Now, the difference between a subtractor and a divider has more to do with intention. Now, th this, this is my schemata, so, um, and, and I did get it from John Maxwell. He's, he's very good with this type of stuff, and, and he, he, he points out the the difference between a subtractor and a divider is more one of intention. But what does a divider do? And I, I, I personally, um, I appreciate what John says in, in this. I, I'm just going to throw out to you my personal thoughts. And that is, a subtractor generally, out of his unintentionality, is that a word? He can be negative or she can be negative. They focus on the negative inside. When, when it's dark outside, wow, it's really dark. When the atmosphere in a group is dark, wow, it's really dark. Not feeling the love here. They tend to be sarcastic in ways that hurt and don't build up. They see the problem and they focus on them, actually can tend to get overwhelmed. They see more what's wrong than what's right. They can tend to be critical, most particularly of other people. And again, all of this, it's, it's not intentional. It just happens. It's hard to bear 
with others' failings. A divider, though, is different. A divider is intentional. CEO is speaking to a subordinate, and he says, you know what, I want you to go, out, I want you to go throughout this company of mine, and I want you to find a young man who's an initiator, who thinks outside the box, who's intelligent and aggressive, and who could actually fill my shoes. And when you find him, I want you to fire him. Do you get that? You see, that, that's a leader who's filled with insecurities, who views himself in competition. The church is a pastor, and if I did that, not only should you fire me, but you should, it, it's not going to build up. So as a pastor, as life group leaders, you guys, you, we need to look for opportunities so that others can step in, outshine us. That's going to be my greatest joy when, when others outshine me. I love that. When my wife, her goal is, I want to pour into you so you outshine, you do better than me, so you run faster and you serve harder and more sacrificial, and the love of Jesus shines in you more than in me. That's my goal. It's not because I like this place of leadership. Leadership means I serve, right? That's leadership, not that we lord it over, not that we want the attention. See, this, this guy right here, he, he was insecure. It had to be about him. But the life Jesus led, he constantly turned to other people. And ultimately on the cross, it wasn't about Jesus, at least what, what he, his purpose was to rescue a lost world, to welcome them in to fellowship and relationship with God himself. From Jesus' perspective, the cross was all about you guys. That's how he lived. And so a divider, he intentionally, out of the insecurities and the flesh that's ruling, apparently, there's competition. You know, growing up, can I just share a little bit of ugly side in Mike Curtis? And, and, and I find sometimes it gets in there, it's like, oh, man, no. My brothers and I, and there were five boys in our family, we were always in competition. My oldest brother is 10 years older than me. He's number one. I'm number five in the family. And Chris, 18 months younger than me, is number six. We were always in competition with one another. When someone would tell a story, we'd have to try and tell a story that was funnier. When someone would say, hey, watch this and do a handstand, we would have to do a handstand and walk on it. When so they would do something, we said, oh, that's nothing, and we'd try to outdo them. You know, we, we were that CEO. <laughs> Fire the guy. <laughs> I mean, the, the, God wants to just eradicate that in us. Get rid of that competition. Church, no one in this room is in competition with anyone else because you're different. Some of you are just really different. No, you're different. And, and because of our diversity, and I'm going to call it our arsenal, if you will. Jesus smiles upon it, and he rejoices over us with singing, if Zephaniah says. And he's delighted to, by his spirit, pour gifts into us that just makes us so very different so that we can meet one another's needs. You know what? Some of you guys, I, I, you just blow me away. You meet people's needs so naturally. The love of Christ just overflows in your life. And, and I want to grow up and be like you. I really do. You amaze me. My wife in particular, but so many of you, I see how you sacrifice. And, and at times in my prayer life, I, I just, I cry before the Lord. 
because you amaze me. Because you want to be adders and multipliers. An adder is intentional. A multiplier is intentional as well. I don't think you can be an adder or multiplier without being intentional because we deal with our flesh, even as Christians. And, and day by day, it's a crucifixion. So adders, so what I'm going to talk about is speaking those wholesome words that pour out grace as the dispensers of grace, benefiting those who listen. It's intentional, church. They focus on the positive, on the good, and what's right. Do they see what's wrong? They probably do. But they're not going to choose not to focus on it. And they mine the gold in other people's lives. That's what they look for. When you go into a mine, there's like thousands of times more rock than there is gold. You want to spend the rest of your life thinking, 99% of my life was just getting rid of rock. No, tell me, what did you discover? Oh, yeah, we did discover enough gold to make me rich. <laughs> Hello? Church, let's mine the gold, and let's forget about the rock and the debris in one another's lives. Let's, let's be able to overlook that. Now, hear me, verse 15, it does say, speak the truth in love, so actually we can see some of this rock and debris, and out of love, speak truth. But we only and ever do that when it benefits one another. Some people pride themselves in being prophets in the body of Christ, and they point out people's needs. You know, now they don't have a gift of prophecy. They have a gift of criticism, pretty much. Okay? And I, I believe the gift of prophecy is for today, as you understand it correctly, biblically. But people go around and say, my gifting is to point out your faults. No, you're a divider is what you are. Can I, can I say that in love? <laughs> okay. You see, the, the, the one who adds, they turn the light on when it's darkest. And they weigh their words carefully because words have impact. Proverbs 18, 21, the tongue has the power of life and death. Steve Nash, point guard for many years for the Phoenix Suns, would regularly get 10-plus assists in a game. Now, for some of you who don't follow basketball whatsoever, you're wondering right now what that hoop is for. The truth is, 10-plus assists, that's great. Steve Nash was a decent scorer, but that was not his focus. He made MVP in all-star games, He in, in, in championships, not because he scored the most, but as a point guard, he knew how to make the other four guys on the court look great. His purpose was not to get the, the spotlight. His purpose was to give his teammates the spotlight. But in doing that, he became one of the best point guards of his day. He ran the plays, he dished out the ball, and he let them score. You see, our life consists of this. Stephen, my goal is to always build you up and never tear you down. And it's to make you the best servant of Jesus Christ so that you're, you live the crucified life. So that you then, Stephen, can pour in 
into Brock or pour into Juliana, pour into even Danny and Zori, believe it or not. You can benefit as mature as they are in the Lord. You can pour into them because the seed falls in the ground and dies and begins to sprout for the purpose of producing more seeds. So I want to give to you, Stephen, so that you can become an, a better dispenser of God's grace than me. That point guard that constantly looks to build his teammates up and not tear them down. You know, an attitude in a team can, dis, can determine winning or losing. They can have a great team with a bad attitude, with finding the negative and focusing that and tearing people down and getting into arguments. You're going to lose. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how good your team is. You're going to lose. Same with the body of Christ. Multipliers, parents, you can be one of the best examples of multipliers, of sowing seeds. And then, because those seeds are going to come from you. Can I ask you, in your family, moms, dads, in your family, are you lifting or are you tearing down? Are you constantly focusing on the problems or do you go out of your way to mine the gold and highlight that gold constantly in your children, praising them? I don't know of a better person at this than my wife. I've learned so much from her because I grew up in a negative home. I grew up as a subtractor and a divider. My wife, she chose not to live that way. And I've been able to learn so much from her. And granted, I have so much more to learn. But see, I want to be a thermostat and not a thermometer. I want to be able to set the atmosphere in a room rather than let the negativity that may be in a room impact me. And I just piggyback on that. I don't want to do that. So parents, can I ask you, are you embittering your children? Or are you mining the gold? Is the gold your focus? Because if you constantly have expectations for your children and they're not living up to them, you will not mine the gold. You're not going to do it. You will embitter. Your children will be focused on the negativity and they will grow up to be subtractors and dividers just like I did and God had to change me. God had to reach so deep into my heart and pull out all of the insecurities from the hurts and wounds in my life I was like, as, as Shrek said, I'm like an onion, right? <laughs> Layers. You mean like a birthday cake, right? Layers. No, like an onion. Because, <laughs> okay, yeah, so I made people cry, okay? There we go. That's the analogy. My wife was sweet. She was like the birthday cake, okay? And, and so how do you turn an onion into a birthday cake? I, that's another sermon. I don't know. But the truth is God can change us and make us adders and multipliers, intentionality, and not just stop at, I'm going I'm to be nice to you, but my goal is now to help you be nice to other people and minister. Parents, you're in that perfect position, life group leaders, perfect position to be able to do disciplers. When you're discipling someone, perfect position to be able to be a multiplier as you die to self, as the seed falls in the ground, to now produce many seeds. Are you with me on that, church? We're going to be having communion here right now. I don't know if you want to have children come in. We're going to have communion right now. The heart of communion is the cross. 
It is Christ who came down and poured himself out for you and me, whose body was broken for me because Jesus was a multiplier far beyond what will ever be, obviously. But he's my hero. I want to learn to be like him. I want to be like that seed that falls into the ground and is able to produce many seeds. That's what Jesus did. And yes, in a sense, I want to be glorified like Jesus was glorified. The cross, the resurrection. So I want to lay this before you. As we take communion, maybe we can turn the lights out now. But as we take communion, as we reflect on the cross, can we just pray, God, crucify that thing in me that sees the negative so quickly. Maybe it's hurts that you grew up with. We've been looking at Ephesians 4, the last verse I read in, during the beginning of the, my prayer. Forgiving others as Christ forgave you. For you, maybe that's where it starts. The hurts that are producing this poison in your life. You need to forgive. So, Father, right now, as we gather before your table, and our focus is now completely the cross and Jesus, what you did for me, would you produce in me, Jesus, that character of you that sacrificed, that poured himself out, that mined the gold whose life was completely about others, their interests, their needs, to willingly be inconvenienced for the help and blessing of others. To, Jesus, I want to love as you love. And as you loved on that cross, that's what I want to be. So Jesus, today, if you need me to be put on that cross would you do that would you crucify that which is in me that's producing this ugly and bringing division and hurts crucify that I humble myself before you God you be my focus.